1: Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting brought to you by elkgrows.com with your host and elk hunting coach Joe Gilligan. You want to hunt elk? And they live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell.
0: Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters.
2: Welcome, everybody. I'm Joe Gillia, and this is our Insights Edition of Blue Collar Elk Hunting, where we want to talk and learn about all things elk. On today's special edition, y'all, if you have watched any outdoor TV show, you can most likely thank today's guest for having those shows to watch. His production company produced more than 2,000 episodes across 55 different shows, and he just doesn't create shows. The outdoors and hunting are his passion, a passion, and this is what's cool to me, that he is now passing on to his own sons, as well as the importance of conservation and educating others on the need and virtues of hunting and fishing. Y'all, Chris Dorsey has spent his life experiencing everything outdoors on five different continents. I have trouble getting out of five counties, man. He has harvested all 29 North American big game species. And as the host of Sporting Classics with Chris Dorsey, he shares and brings those stories right to your living room. Y'all, if there is anyone out there that has had a lifetime of incredible outdoor experiences, tempered with years of wisdom, Buddy wrote that would be Chris Dorsey. Chris, welcome to the show. Joe, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. You just basically flew in from one of those continents.
1: Yeah, I just got in uh, late yesterday afternoon from South Africa. We spent about two weeks over there filming some shows, some big game, Buffalo, plains game, a little wing shooting. Uh, had a group over there. My whole family was with me as well. So it was kind of a special trip, especially after so many months of lockdown and and cancellations of trips. It's nice to get back out.
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. I just talked about Chris, the producer. I just gave you that intro there and um, about Chris, the producer and entrepreneur. Um, How about telling everybody about Chris, the man? Because that's what I think they want to hear about.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Most of our business now is, is really not in outdoor television anymore. We still do sporting classics TV, obviously. And, and uh, we do a podcast associated with that as well, but most of our business is mainstream cable programming. It's discovery channel, it's DIY, it's HGTV and, and uh, you know, Nat Geo history, et cetera. But you know, my heart, my passion, my real enthusiasm still resides in the outdoor category. It has for a long time. And that's really how I got into this whole business, was just following a, a passion for the outdoors, as you just said. And I uh, started as a magazine editor. I still describe myself as a recovering magazine editor, <laughs> ran Ducks Unlimited Magazine, worked at Hunting Magazine for several years, ran Sports of Field Magazine for, for Bob Peterson when he bought it from Hearst Magazines. Out of New York, but it's you know for me it's always been just about avoiding honest work. You know I want I want to do something <laughs> I love to do, and and if you do that you never really work a day in your life, as they say, and I I think that really is true, and that's been kind of my my DNA for a long time, and I've been blessed.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and your father.
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got twin boys who are now 16, and and we're juggling football practices in the fall, and and hunting schedules, and all that kind of stuff, and and. Uh, which was part of what was so extra special about this trip to Africa. I mean, you can you can see what's going to happen in their lives, right? Any, any right. parent knows about this time of, of life. They get real busy and they start chasing girls and, and their school and their sports. And the next thing you know, they're off to college. And, and uh, so where did the years go kind of a deal? So it was really a special time for us to be able to get out of the country and then share that as a family. And And I I love taking other people hunting now as much as anything else. I mean, I feel like I've taken everything I'll ever need to take in my life. And if I never pull the trigger again on a big game animal, that's entirely fine. And, And I think there's an old Robert Ruark quote that I love so much, which is, you know, at some point in my life, I might be willing to give up hunting but I'll never be willing to give up the company of hunters. And I think that's kind of the stage I'm in right now. Right. I, I love hunting. I love being around it. I love the conservation, the give back, the raising the next generation and, and, uh, and really getting them pumped and juiced about giving back in conservation as part of the, the whole full circle of hunting that, that I think we're all part of. And, uh, but it's, it's great. I love it. And it's been a great life. And uh, hopefully I've got many more years to go.
2: Yeah, you know, so you, if I remember right, you're in your fifties, you're about probably around 56 or so, right?
1: Yeah, there you go.
2: And so I'm 59. And, and so I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, I'm in that same stage where you start to see, well, there's a whole lot less hunts in the windshield as there are in the rear view mirror. So uh, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and yeah, but it really is. It really is just the magic of it is taking somebody else and seeing That's it through their eyes and. And, uh, you know, I just love that. I mean, I just love the, the whole anticipation of, of getting my kids involved. And, and you commented on this, too. And we get we get so much commentary about the TV show, if, if the boys are involved, if the family's involved. I think people just love to see that. I mean, they, they love to see the whole family connection, and, and I think they can relate to that. And, uh, you know, the ups and downs, if, if you blow a stalk or you miss a shot, and, you know, whatever, God forbid you lose an animal, all the things that can happen in hunting, you know, we've all been there. And and I think as long as you're honest about that, at least in the, the television portrayal of it, I think, I think that resonates pretty well.
2: And how hard is that though, Chris? I mean, do you guys get hit a lot with that on the portrayal part of it, whether that is the realistic versus, you know, the the quick synopsis, you know, where people aren't seeing the full grind of the hunt, but they're only seeing the glory of it. And and you have to excuse me because I live in Cimarron, New Mexico. I don't own dish. Uh, I don't have cable. And, you know, in fact, uh, I spent uh, I shared a camp with uh, Michael Waddell uh, two years ago. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when I was going in to do that guiding and people said that, you know, that he was going to be there and they said, I was like, great, you know, another hunter until a buddy of mine that, you know, I sent a picture on the hunt. He just went nuts. And he's like, you're with Wadi and all this stuff, you know? And I'm like, he's just another guy that loves to hunt because I don't know those TV personalities or (laughs) out there. So this is what's cool about us being able to have this conversation because I get to know you as a hunter uh, and that's going to be the cool part of it, the perspective of it. so excuse me if I don't know some of that stuff that's out there yeah yeah no
1: and and, 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 and truthfully I mean it, I've been doing this a long time obviously but but when I started hunting I mean it was it was a local farm it was buddies of mine who owned farms it was public land and and so yeah I mean I've done far-flung stuff because of of a, a career track and all that 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 created some opportunities but you know, uh, I didn't grow up with that. I mean, it, that was not my my baptism into the sport. I mean, I, I'd freeze my butt off in a makeshift duck blind on public land in Wisconsin, and and uh, and just you know work my butt off to get a couple of roosters with a bird dog that I had I had trained. And, and so anyway, I mean, it's it, it's not as if, and I know people that just sort of came into it later in life, right? And had means and resources, and they could. They could, you know, buy expensive hunts and do that kind of stuff, which is wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. But, but that isn't my background. I mean, my background was was very much, you know, I I was the dog for my older brothers. I would flush the rabbits <laughs> in the pheasants and and uh, I, I kept that job, except I was a little hard mouthed. You know, they fired me. But yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. So you know, our main focus is elk, which yeah. um, I absolutely we're going to talk about together, but you know, since I have you here, I, I did, I have done some reading. And, and the thing that I was impressed about, I told you there's a few things. Number one, I loved the sharing as well with your boys. I love the camaraderie of the hunt myself. Um, And I'm the same way as a guide. And as a coach, it's all about seeing that growth of others. And and like you said, seeing that light go on, seeing them have those experiences. But you know, I know that you are, it's very important to you preserving our hunting heritage. And and I know um, that you have involvement in conservation. So I, I want to touch on those a little bit as well as we're going. Um, and, and, and I'll start out right away with, because in this last year, especially in this last year when COVID hit, I don't know if people had more chance to create bills or, or what was going on, but it seemed like there was an attack all across the West in all different ways on on hunting in some way, shape, or form, and th- that really concerns you. It concerns me. It concerns yeah. a lot of us. So, what do you see as the biggest threat from where you sit to our hunting heritage?
1: yeah well look and i've I've talked pretty extensively about this to a lot of groups and and have done a lot of interviews on this very topic um and and we saw it big time in colorado as they as they put the wolves on the ballot box here it was you know we've now surrendered biological science in the state of colorado to the ballot box and, and ballot box biology is bad news and and i'm not inherently against wolves i don't I don't you know they're just an animal they're they're doing what an animal would do but the way they've been used and sort of weaponized in, in almost a cultural war against hunting particularly in this state was pretty sinister and and i talked extensively about that in all sorts of radio interviews i do a i do a column in forbes as well and i wrote about it in forbes because it's interesting it's a it's a the outfitting business in colorado is a is a billion dollar industry it's a big economic driver, particularly a small town in rural Colorado on the Western Slope. Uh And and they they did this by getting petitions signed in Denver. Now, you know, how disingenuous could you possibly be, right? You're going to go to Denver, far removed from where the wolves are going to be, and ask Denver citizens to sign this petition. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have wolves in the state of Colorado once again? You know, and, and so the whole process is just almost ridiculous. But but multiply that across the country, you're seeing bans, as you as you say, and in uh, importation of African game animals into New York and Connecticut and New Jersey. And, and, and so it's like a rash of these things all over the country now. And, and I've been involved with the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation for several years now on their board. And that's an industry board. Right. That's the manufacturers of the industry, retailers, et cetera. And, and we're all seeing it. And and we're also seeing this cultural war against hunting wage by big tech that's, that's kicking stuff off of, of their platforms, uh, by big media in general that's going after us all the time, by celebrities, corporations now, airlines that won't fly trophies in, you know, just this massive anti-hunting deal. I, I keep pushing the industry to say, Where is our sustained media campaign? When are we going to engage on scale and sustain that? You know, major national ad campaigns, educational campaigns, and and get out there and keep talking about it's not like you're just gonna, you're gonna create an ad in the Wall Street Journal and walk away, your work here is done. We We have to move the needle and the only way to do that is to be very aggressive, telling our story. We have a tremendous story to tell. And what's always disheartening to me is to see how quickly we fold. You know, We don't even engage in many cases. And, and so I'm pushing the industry to, to say, look, it isn't going to get better unless we make it better. We have to define ourselves and, and who we are, what we stand for, all that we've done for conservation the give back. We have to define ourselves because right now, We're letting everybody else define us and and we're losing that battle so i think the good news is i'm seeing a lot of the industry wake up and go damn right i mean we've got to get into this game you know we've got to get active about this we've got to be proactive you might have seen that that johnny morris bought a an ad for bass pro in the last super bowl and one of the things i talked about in a uh, legends of the outdoors speech a couple of years ago in nashville I got up in front of a thousand people and said, where the hell are our Super Bowl ads? Why aren't we talking about these things? You know, why aren't we, you know, front and center in, in people's homes and hearts and minds? And uh, so anyway, it was nice to see, I'm sure it wasn't because I said that, but it was nice to see Johnny Morris in Bass Pro Shops. Now, look, it was a soft ad, but it was in the Super Bowl. Let's get outdoors. Let's celebrate the natural world. That's a start. And And so how do we do that? How do we keep you know, keep talking and be vigilant. and and so I, I talk about that all the time. and i'm I'm going back to uh, to springfield to to give a a speech here in in about three weeks and and that'll be a, a lot of the outdoor industry, and it's going to be on that topic as well. You know we've got to we've got to get active. We've got pittman Robertson funds. We've got an industry that that can raise plenty of money. It's not a lack of money. We have the revenue. We have the ability to do it. And I don't care if we have to take Pittman-Robertson taxes, a portion of that, put it towards marketing, all that's good and great about hunting and conservation together, let's do it. I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's a great investment. And uh, and I hope we do. I hope the industry steps up in a concerted way and sustains a campaign to the mainstream, not just to each other, which which we're very good at. We're very good at telling ourselves how great we are and aren't we wonderful and and then the rest of the you know world scratches their head like, who are these people? Yeah, so,
2: that, I, I think you bring up a good point because when you talk about the biggest threat, it's really ourselves. Our threat is us not ste- stepping up and and educating. I, th- I think a lot of people want to use the, the, the bat where you want to hit people over the head or you want to show something and say, look, this is how it is. You know, take it or leave it. Well, we're not able to do that anymore. We have to educate. We have yeah. to defend our lifestyle in, in, and our stance in a way that people can understand and be proud of it. You know? So I totally agree. I I think that biggest threat is us actually, instead of just withdrawing and saying, Hey, as long as I have my 40 acres, I'm good because it's, it's not what it's about, man. Uh, It's not going to be about that for our kids and our kids, kids either.
1: Yeah. And we've seen, you know, recently because of COVID, we've seen increases in hunting license sales, et cetera, I don't think anybody really thinks that's, that's a long-term trend. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's, a, you know, it's good news in the short term anyway that because of the lockdowns, people wanted to get the hell out of the house and do something. And hunting and fishing was certainly a nice retreat to be able to do that. But I think long-term, we know that this category has declined. We're less than 4% of the population of the country. In many states, we're much less than 4%. So we're a small piece of, of the national population. So we've got to be active. We've got to be proactive. And and I think we will be, but I, I just wonder how bad how bad does it have to get before we really step up as an industry and go after this?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, one thing that concerns me, being a retired teacher, coach, um, poor boy, just like you, <laughs> when, when we were those kids doing those bullfrog hunts and those squirrel hunts back in the day. Um, yeah. You know, is that the opportunity for a lot of people, the cost for a lot of opportunity, you know, for that opportunity and where the focus in those urban areas have have become so urban centralized. It's, you know, all of our programs are basically, you know, get our kids involved in just soccer you know uh and at the age is real young in football and those things and and i'm not knocking that i'm a i'm a retired coach you know i do all mm-hmm. the sports but it it doesn't seem like we're teaching those life lessons or those outdoor lessons that can extend their experiences when they become adults still well, of- right and i think part of that
1: is because you know they don't have a friend group that does it right i mean Absolutely. it's and 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 culturally it's it it feels toxic to them now to be identified as a hunter in many, many parts of the country. Now, if you live in rural Georgia or rural Wisconsin or Alabama, whatever, maybe, maybe you never are confronted with that. I, I totally get that. But for a big chunk of the population in suburban and urban America, you know, they're, they're just not exposed to it. And what they are exposed to is a lot of negative, negativity surrounding the, the hunting sports and, and pursuit. So, you know, until we, until we create an atmosphere where they go, it's cool, it's hip, it's fun, it's fresh, it's redeeming, it's a great lifestyle to be in the outdoors, to be a hunter. Until we give them that sort of cover, so that they can they can try the lifestyle, be a part of a lifestyle. Um, you know, it's tough to recruit. It's just tough to get people to come in. And you look at you look at Canada. I mean, Canada is a country of 35 million people in the entire landmass, the massive landmass. There's more people in California than all of Canada. And so you're you're thinking, well, these people must all go hunting and fishing, right? I mean, they've got tremendous access to Crown land, their federal land, and and Ducks Unlimited projects, hundreds of millions of dollars of wetlands projects in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba that are open to hunting as well. So your assumption is they're all going to go hunting and fishing because it's got to be readily available, terrific populations. Well, guess what? Their numbers have plummeted. And, and the reason for that isn't because of access. We all thought in the industry it was about access. If you gave somebody access to go hunting and fishing, they would go hunting and fishing. Well, point of fact, they don't. They don't if it's not interesting, cool, hip, and fun, and, and redeeming. If they don't view it that way, they're not going to go do it. And and so in Canada, there's been lots of anti-hunting pressures, and and it's, it's now seen by a lot of Canadians as a really toxic, lifestyle they don't they don't want to be associated with killing animals you know it's it's a pc culture that's kind of taken over and and when you look at canada you go how in the world could a country of only 35 million people which with such tremendous resources you know not have more hunters and anglers not be growing in terms of the number of hunters and anglers but in fact declining rapidly
2: yeah, yeah, that's um, that is a huge red flag yeah. right there. Yeah, it's huge, and I, you know, I think uh, part of that was when we were kids, and when you were kids, you know, we had uncle, grandpa, cousin, you know, that uh ended up taking us out, and you know, like you said, I'm seeing from from COVID. You know, when all of the shelves disappeared of meat and things that were out there, I'm seeing a lot of these millennials now that are wanting to know where their food is coming from, are wanting to contribute to that, are wanting to do that full circle. So there is a little bit of that change. Like you said, we hope some of that is sustainable and it can be if we nurture it.
1: Yeah, and I think that locavore movement, you know, sourcing food on the land and by the land in your area, I think that's a great thing. I think that's a great story of hunting. And, you know, my family, I'm sure your family is the same way, lives on wild game. You know, and is is there a better animal than an elk to eat? If, if there is, I don't know of it because it's fantastic. <laughs> and I've got a freezer full of it and we love it.
2: Yep, it, it's fantastic. I tell you what, now I, I, I tasted some Oryx and some Neo guy that, was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's some good stuff. Yeah. Hill guy is awfully good too. Yeah. yeah, it is. So we're let's go to the hunting side there, man. And we're always talking to our listeners about learning moments on their elk hunting journey. You remember that first hunt, that first elk hunt?
1: You know, the first elk hunt I ever did was, uh, I think I was 22 or 23 uh-huh. and I was, uh, I was actually living, oddly enough, in Los Angeles, working for Peterson's Hunting Magazine. And, uh, and it was an advertising deal where they sent us out to southwest Colorado, or in Junction, and, uh, and we hunted near the Uncompahgre Plateau. And, you know, basically, I was given a slice of the mountain. They said, just sit here, and if it's got four points on one side, you can shoot it, right? And I'm like, you know, grew up in Wisconsin. We didn't have any elk back then. And I'd never never been elk hunting at all and uh, didn't grow up with it. And so I, I parked my butt down the side of a mountain. It's getting light, getting light, and I can hear elk bugling and uh, still a remnant bugle in the season. And all of a sudden, I, I just sit and I'm thinking, maybe that's another elk hunter, you know. I, it was on public land. And all of a sudden, a cow comes by 75 yards away and just single file, single file, single file, all these cows and then there's a five-point bull that steps in, and I'm like, vibrating. I mean, just, I was so, <laughs> I, it, it, was, it was a moment I'll never forget, because here's this gigantic animal when you're used to looking at a white-tailed deer in the Midwest. Here's this huge bull elk, body-wise. And anyway, I made the shot, we got the bull, and no, there was no guide around. It was just me sitting on the side of a mountain. And that was kind of cool. It was kind of a cool moment, kind of a neat way to get your first elk.
2: Yeah. Awesome. And, and then now you, you got your elk, um, the work began, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately I had some reinforcements <laughs> on that one. So that that was the good news.
2: <laughs> so you you've had, and you were 23, 24 at the time.
1: Yeah. Young.
2: Yeah. So, um, you've had a lot of years and a lot of hunts that are in there. And for those people that are listening here, what would you say were some of the biggest lessons you learned along the way with that animal?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it, I think, I think Rocky mountain elk are a probably our greatest big game animal. I mean, I just, in, in terms of where they live, the theater, of the experience, you know, I, I'm not a bow hunter. I used to do some bow hunting once upon a time. I'll probably get back into it when I have more time because I've, I love bow hunting. I just don't have a lot of time to be able to do it, uh-huh. and uh, and so to be able to hunt in the bugle, the theater of elk in the in the bugle is just so spectacular. Now in Colorado we have ranching for wildlife, so you can use a rifle in the bugle on on properties that are I think north of twenty thousand acres, something like that. So I've done that a few times, um, but just just I think if you're hunting elk in the bugle, you're you're experiencing that animal at the peak. Of of the experience. I mean, I just don't think you can, you know, you can enjoy a big game hunt more than elk and the bugle. And and I think you know, I can imagine the bow hunters, you know, that's got to be just electric. And I've got a lot of bow hunting friends that that right. live, they live to to hunt elk, and rightfully so. I mean, to be able to call in an animal that size, to fool that animal, to put an arrow into it. Um, yeah, you know, that's that's kind of top of the food chain stuff right there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's there I've only ever I, I do guide rifle hunters, but I've only ever hunted elk with a bow. And, and I've told people once you do it one time, be careful because <laughs> you're hooked. Once you get yeah. that close to that magnificent animal, you know I I think back to that time when you said you were 23, with that animal coming across there, and um, about how far you said about 75 yards, eighty yards. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a long shot. It was just
1: interesting because I could hear it without seeing it. And then the cows came single file and finally he brought up the rear and, and when he, you know, so the anticipation, the buildup, because it took the cows and there's probably a dozen, 15 cows. Right. And uh, it took, you know, 15, 20 minutes for all of them to clear before he finally came out. So, you know, for a complete newbie like me at that age, you know, to have this bull step out broadside, perfectly clear. um, you know, That was kind of an ordained moment, I think
2: grinders tuning in thank you for listening to the blue collar elk hunting podcast our goal is to share our knowledge and help you flatten that learning curve so that you too can have some of the very same incredible experiences that have given all of us here at elk bros a lifetime of memories if you like what you hear or see you can get all of this information plus so much more from our base camp elk hunting training camp the first in a series of online courses from our Blue Collar Elk Academy. Our base camp training camp allows me to use my coaching style and share almost 40 years of elk hunting experiences successfully hunting elk on public lands as well as over 20 years guiding hunters of all ages and experience levels. This course will be like nothing you have ever experienced in concept and structure using success based coaching techniques that will elevate your confidence and skill sets. Our camp will prepare you specifically from that final moment most in your control, those final minutes or seconds the elk is in front of you, backwards through each step and level, allowing you to see, visualize, understand, and relate every coaching point to what lies ahead, the next step, the next thought process, the next success. Because y'all, you've already been there you know what it looks like. By tapping my 30 years of teaching and coaching experience, our camps are developed considering multiple learning modes with text, visuals, audio, as well as video. And Basecamp will benefit those new to elk hunting all the way to the 10 to 15 year vet. So if you are looking for that one thing to help you fill that tag this year, invest in the most important piece of equipment there is, you and your elk hunting knowledge you can find the blue collar elk hunting academy and the base camp training camp at elkbros.com that's e-l-k-b-r-o-s.com keep dreaming of the screaming believing in achieving and most of all keep grinding (laughs) because i I, you know i have a very good friend that does this podcast with me gilbert or that he always talks about um the first time that he had a bull in front of him and this bull was only at 19 yards and but prior to that hunt you know i'm shooting with Gilbert. And he's like, man, y'all just get a bull in front of me. And I'm just going to put that thing. And, and I'm like, bud, man, it's not always that, you know, it can be a little intimidating. Oh, I've put down hundreds of those white tails, man. You just get one in front of me. And he talks about the time that bull came out in front of me, said, everything went out the crack of his butt, man. He had, <laughs> he just lost his, he just lost his cookies right there,
1: man. Yeah, no, it's uh it's completely understandable. We did a series for many years called uh real trees, monster bulls, uh, huh. Um, and, and they have, of course, had a video series going. And then we did Elk Fever as well. So we took a lot of people on elk, elk hunts, and and John Paul Morris and Johnny Morris was were on one of our shows. Mm-hmm. And John Paul was I don't know maybe late teens something like that. There's Johnny Morris, a legend of bass pro shops, with him and and he's hunting I think in New Mexico or Arizona, one of the two. And this you know three sixty class bull, and he's bow hunting comes out it's bugling like crazy and, and we see it on camera come 80 yards 70 yards 60 yards finally gets about 30 yards and you're like it's a billboard you can't miss this thing right <laughs> right, right John Paul, <laughs> let's go goes right over his back I mean just just right over his back then you're like I could see that happening you know of course I mean just the the adrenaline of that and uh, as as luck would have it, he managed to get a bigger pull later with a bow, oh, so it, it worked out worked out okay for him. But it was it was such a great moment. It was just one of those you could just hear his heartbeat through the camera. It was amazing.
2: You know, we always talk about failure points, and. Uh, I, I don't know how many elk hunts that you've been on over the years, but we always talk about finding those failure points and eliminating those failure points. And if, as you recollect and you look back and you think back on some of your hunts, there's those things that just went wrong that you at the wrong time that you just didn't expect that uh, maybe you could have cured if you would have thought about it ahead of time. Can do you have any of those that come up in your head at all? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, the
1: patience when you're bugling and, and calling mm-hmm. to let them come, you know, and, and yeah. to not move, to not push in, you know, I've, I've done that multiple times where we've just, we've gone in too soon. We should have waited Had we just waited a couple of more minutes, you know, that bull would have been there. And, and instead you get impatient, it stops bugling. I mean, it's not unlike a Turkey, you know, it's, it's very similar in terms of the, the, the Turkey hunting experience just, you know, magnify dramatically with the, the drama of a bull elk, but, but just be patient, just sit. If they're coming, they were coming. If they're calling and they stopped, they're looking, you know, they're looking, they're coming in. And, and uh, yeah, I did that in, well, I've, I've done that multiple times. <laughs> I mean, too many times to count. You would think at a certain point I might learn, but you know, it's one of those, you know you just you just assume it's like, all right, you should have been here by now, I'm gonna get up and move and just by the time you do it, boom, you're winded, you' they catch your movement, you're gone, you know they're gone.
2: yeah, I think the problem is with that is that we as humans, we want to do things in our time and not in an elk's time. And it seems like our time with all of the immediate satisfaction getting, I mean, it used to be a time you had to wait for a computer to boot up for like five minutes. And now, now, if it's not up in 30 right. seconds, you're angry. Right. So I I totally agree. There's so many people and it happens with bow hunters all the time that they, they do a setup or th- where they're going to do a scenario and calls and they're working it. And you know, they think, "Well, dang, they should have just run into me by now," only right. to stand up and there's a bull staring at them thirty yards away when they take a step because they didn't yeah. give it an opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely, man. What about equipment-wise? Have you ever had any issues with equipment that was something that uh, came up at the wrong time?
1: You know, I, I can't really think of any equipment problems. Um, you know, I did just use the, uh, the the 6.8 on an elk hunt this past fall, the the new Winchester round, which I was pretty pretty happy to use. It, it's a great caliber. Um, I think it's going to do well. It's sort of their answer to the 6.5 Creedmoor. And and elk are tough. I mean, of all the North American animals, there there isn't a tougher animal than than a good bull elk. And and I say that to people in Africa all the time. I said the only animal in North America that's comparable to the toughness of so many African animals is the Rocky mountain elk. They're just, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of the 300. I mean, I just think the 300 is kind of the perfect caliber of the right weight. Um, and, and I, you know, this debate over long range shooting, I, am you know, I don't have anything against long range shooting. I'm just not, that, that isn't my game. And, uh, you know, I like to get in as close as I can get. Sometimes you can't get, you know, extremely close, but, uh, but the bull hunters would disagree and <laughs> say, well, wait a minute, you know, we get in all the time, you know? So, so it's a, it's a fun debate. I think it's a, it's a, it's a worthwhile debate, but I don't think it should be an argument.
2: No, absolutely. And, and, and therein lies again, when we're trying to promote hunting to the, you know, right. we don't need to be dividing ourselves different strokes. You know, if you're doing something and yeah. like something that, gets you excited is what you're doing if it's about the the long the length of the shot or if it's about how close you're going to be before you make that Ooh. shot whatever works for right. you i totally agree with that right. you know on that now what's so cool about having you chris is that most of the time when i talk i am bow oriented and i figure a lot of the things that i talk about with the bow absolutely can be used with the rifle hunter i mean when you we start getting to the talking stuff but A lot of times rifle hunters very few opportunities unless you're doing like you said for ranching for wildlife, or in some ranch scenarios or in some states, do rifle hunters actually get to hunt during the rut. Right. So I have some guys out there that do get that opportunity to hunt during the rut. And it's a different animal from the bow hunting to the rifle hunting, because they almost have two different goals where as a bow hunter, I want it as thick and as tight as possible. Right. And I want to be in that country where I'm not really going to be able to glass a whole lot because I want those animals coming in tight to me. Now with the rifle hunter, it's a little bit different. Have you ever hunted during the rut before?
1: I have. And, uh, a few times and it, it's, you know, look, it it's, it, the theater of that animal, the bugling, and you've got a half a dozen bulls, you know, a few hundred yards away from you, just all around you, and that cacophony, that sound, that that electricity of just just being in that environment is pretty spectacular. But but as a rifle guy, I mean, like last season, I was in southern Colorado on a private fifty thousand acre ranch hunting elk mm-hmm. that had been, you know, multiple bow hunters had come through that ranch, multiple rifle hunters. I was the last season. I mean, it was cold. I mean, cold, 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 like zero.
2: Date of that? What was the date of that, Chris? Like November something, or yeah, it was. It was the very last
1: season, two days before the end of last season. I have to look up the actual date. All right, but it it was one of those where you're going out there. These are elk that had been pressured. Now, some of the elk had moved onto this ranch from private, from public ground, and uh, but but these were switched on elk. I mean, they knew exactly what was going on. We were getting up the mountain early. And it was so cold and windy and, and snow and brutal conditions, but there were some big bulls still on that ranch. And, and we kept going up the mountain, just seeing the, the butt end of these elk get into the timber and they were gone. They were gone kind of all day. And finally, you know, we, we just go, look, let's go into this thousand acre stand of giant aspens. Those bulls are bedding down in there and just see if we can sneak in and, and try and get up on them. And, and you know what it's like in those big aspens. I mean, it's like this weird camouflage. The, it's like a Bev Doolittle painting, you know, where oh, they're yeah, hidden yeah, yeah. coming through the forest, right? Yeah. And, right. It, these, you know, the elk are there one minute, then they're gone. They're just behind a tree. And, and so we just snuck our way in two hours into this little hike into this huge patch of aspens to see just a little bit of turn of, of antler maybe 150 yards through the trees. Glass, lean around, do one of these deals. Three bulls bedded down, including this 360 bull, that heavy, heavy giant horn monster, you know, and, and get in there, and get about 75 yards away and just go, can't get any closer than that. We're just going to wait. We're just going to sit here and wait for him to stand up, give us a shot. And 30 minutes later, he did. And it was just one of those epic sort of, we tried everything around that mountain. These were the survivors of the season. These bulls had seen plenty of pressure. They knew exactly what was going on. So when you can can extract an animal like that out of 50,000 acres, you know, that's kind of a satisfying thing. Very different than the bugle, which has, you know, of course, the drama and the theater of of the bugling animal and, and elk in all their glory. But there's still something special about that late season bull. Late season anything. I don't care if it's a late season rooster pheasant. You know, you get one of those, you just feel like you've gotten something special, you know, because that was the survivor, that's the beast, that's the animal of, of the population that endured for whatever reason, not just luck, but because of guile and cunning, I'm sure, and and so that's that's a really satisfying thing, particularly at the end end of a hunt, you know, that that's really fun.
2: Well, what a lot of people don't see is you said we, you know, we were there for thirty minutes waiting for this bull to stop. Right. up, and I mean you know, we're all sitting in the comfort of our home going, oh, we're sitting here for 30 minutes, but yeah. out there with the wind and with the cold and everything like that, 30 minutes can, can be tough right. sometimes. Right. and in, in
1: television time, that'll be about 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you're, to your point of how, how do you portray the struggle the actual, you know, it was, I mean, look, I grew up in Wisconsin. I know cold. I've been around the <laughs> cold. Yeah. I've run it all over Canada, Alaska, the Arctic and all that kind of stuff. Let me tell you, it was cold and, and cold and, and deep snow and all that fun stuff. But that just makes it all the more rewarding when you finally connect. Yeah. But there, there's a
2: lot of people that, uh, man, they're like, no, nah, I'll take, I'll take, yeah. I'll take a, a tree stand, uh, you know, or a stand during the warm time of the year. Right. Absolutely. Right. man. So, let, right. I, and I want to go back to that, being able to rifle hunt during the rut and, the strategy, what that looks like for a rifle hunter, the thought process, what they're looking for, as far as, of course, I mean, you've got bugles that are happening out there, but when you hear a bugle that happens, what is your mindset? What are you thinking? What is your goal once you've located where that bugle is?
1: Well, I, I don't know that the weapon makes any difference relative to your anticipation. I guess, you know. And a lot of the a lot of the uh, bulls I've taken during the bugle have been at close range. I mean, a bowhunter could have taken those shots. Um, so it really is just more about, to me, enjoying the electricity of the bugle and, and, and being that close to game. And I think that you know that's a big part of the appeal of, of bow hunting to me is just that proximity. I mean, to be able to get that close to any animal. And and I've got a great friend, Brad Coors of the Coors family. Who's a huge bow hunter. He hunts all over the world and, and just got back from a, a leopard hunt as a matter of fact, with, but everything with a bow, he doesn't, he just doesn't pick up a rifle. <laughs> just, you know, it's one of those things where I go, man, you know, to go all the way to, you know, Tajikistan for a Mark you know, and then make a 70 yard shot with a bow and take really the world record Mark with a bow. Um, that's gotta be incredible. I mean, the, the satisfaction of, of doing something like that to me is just going to be amazing. But for me, in, in an elk context, I just want to be around the animal. I, I, it, it's such a magnificent beast that to be anywhere near that animal, to, to be able to smell it in the rut, you know, as you're walking into the forest and, and, you know, to hear all the nuance of the bugle and the grunts and everything else, you know, to me, that's, that's, I don't have to pull the trigger. I mean, at the end of the day, just being there is is the win. And, and more often than not, I don't pull the trigger. It's just being out there and and doing that or I'm with somebody else who's, I can feel them vibrating because they're so excited about being that close. I mean that, you know, that's great stuff.
2: So your boys are 16. Do, do either of them pick up the bow or are they just hunting with rifles as well?
1: Yeah, they're, you know, one of them's just started to get into it, and and I think he's going to get into it, and, and he's kind of looking for the next thing, and I've got, I've got one that started as a, as a spin cast fisherman who's now a fly fisherman, mm-hmm. now tying his own flies, double hauling, I mean, you know, and, and so they're going through their own evolution right now, and, you know, as luck would have it, they live in Colorado, which is a pretty dang good place to grow up when it comes to the outdoors, and. And so, yeah, they're just availing themselves now of all these tremendous opportunities and they've got a few friends. They don't have a lot of friends that are into it, but they've got a few. And, and, uh, so it's neat to see kind of their Polaroid come into focus just the way it did for us as we grew up, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch their growth and, and actually you being able to share that with them as well, you know, as, yep. as, as they're going through that, because that's one of the reasons I quit coaching in the fall was <laughs> you couldn't get out
1: and not, so they both play football, right? You said? They do. They do. In fact, yeah, we had to, we, I'm I'm taking one of them on an actually back to that ranch, uh-huh. but it's right, right in between their, their football games. So it's like, you know, anyway, it's one of those deals where I would have killed at that age to have that kind of opportunity. And and here I am trying to schedule it between football games and all that, but that's our new reality, I guess.
2: Well, and I'm hearing that, you know, I'm hearing that in you. Um, I'm not if I'm not sure if everybody else is hearing, it, but you know, I, I can think of the young Chris and the first Elk Hunt and the Chris now, how that perspective has changed. And I and I heard that just a few minutes ago. When you were talking about, well, I can just—I don't have to pull the trigger. I can see somebody else. Where, you know, at one time it was about that harvest, man. It was just getting that harvest in right? sure. at that time. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't—I I don't know how we are able. Let's go back to what you do and how you make your living and portraying this in in media, because how do we portray that? with without and keep viewers that that want to be able to see shows because it it seems like everybody needs something reality based where they they have to have a finish they have to have a kill they have to have a harvest and that's what they want to go to instead of seeing the grind do you see an opportunity for that to happen in media where people will want to see that or how do we how do we get that message across chris
1: yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I and we, you know, we sort of approach it two different ways. I mean, there's the the hunting programming, rightly or wrongly, has been really developed, you know, to have that successful conclusion, that reveal, if you will, to use a term out of out of uh, you know the real estate programming that we do. Um, you know, there seems to be sort of a thirst for the audience, that hardcore audience, to want to see. The encounter, close encounter, conclusion. And, and I don't know necessarily that it needs to be a kill but, but then then you see what's going on in, in discovery programming and, and we did a series for discovery called uh, Kodiak, which is all about the, the bear guides and the bear hunters on Kodiak Island. And yes, a few bears were shot in that series, you know killed on camera. Um, but so much of that story was about the island itself as a character, this amazing ecosystem that produces the largest bear population and largest bears in the world. And, and hunting was a key part of that. You know, the, the population of the bears are doing really well. It has tremendous density, not in spite of hunting, but because of hunting. Right. Hunting, hunting is the management tool that's allowed those bears to flourish as a population and, and so we wanted to we wanted to tell that story. We wanted to portray that story to a very mainstream international audience, right? And that series was in, you know, 112 countries of the world. So anyway, that that's part of what we've always tried to do with our, our mainstream television programming is how do we – and we did Building Alaska for 12 seasons. You know, there was always a hunting component on Building Alaska. It was really about, you know – People that very often wanted to build their own cabins in the middle of the, the forest and be able to hunt, fish, just get away. Uh, we do building off the grid right now on Discovery as well. And, and the motivation for people to build a lot of those structures is to go hunting and fishing as well. So we're trying to weave all that in. I mean, we're not just, you know, we're not pounding the hunting narrative. We're simply showcasing these are people who are hunting for food. You know, they, they need to get a moose so that they have meat through the winter. That's their deal. They're catching salmon because they're going to feed that salmon to themselves, to their dogs, all that, all that kind of stuff. So we try and do that as much as we can. And I think, I think we could do more of that, frankly, in the traditional outdoor network kind of programming. I think we should. And, uh, and I think it's a good thing. You know, it's redeeming. Nobody seems to have a problem if you're killing an animal and eating it, or at least most people don't. Right, But I think in the instant they perceive it as some kind of a trophy quest, you know, whatever that means, right? Uh, last, last I knew, even when I shoot a big animal and I put it on the wall, I'm eating that meat as well. So, you know, we've, again, we've kind of allowed other people to define trophy hunting the way they want to and, and uh, not the way it is. And I think we've got to step up and say, look, there is no such thing as trophy hunting. There's hunting. Hunting is hunting. And, and taking a big, mature animal, bull, you know, buck, whatever, is biologically sustainable and sound. And those are the animals you want to take. And, and yet they're delicious to eat, too. So, um, yeah, anyway, it's, you know, we've tried to do that kind of in all sorts of different series. We've got a new IMAX film coming out right now that we've done in conjunction with Audubon, Ducks Unlimited, the Maxwell Raw Wildlife Foundation. Michael Keaton is narrating Birdman himself. Oh. And it's on migrations, and it's on the Prairie Pothole region. And, and look, nobody has done more to save the prairie wetlands than duck hunters, period. And, and uh, you know, duck hunters, through their license sales, stamp sales, through contributions of Ducks Unlimited, Delta, Max McGraw, all these other organizations have pumped in billions of dollars. The National Wildlife Refuge System exists because of duck hunters. And, and really the genesis of Conservation in America goes back to Boone and Crockett, and and really Ducks Unlimited. And and that's really where this whole thing began in terms of the giving back of of hunters and anglers. So anyway, we're we're doing what we can, and and you won't see hunting in the film. You won't see it in IMAX theaters, but there will be millions and millions of dollars of earned media surrounding that film, which will talk about what duck hunters have done, the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which was created by Waterfowlers Ducks Unlimited and others, and and so all of that is a great narrative that we don't have to go directly at the audience. We can we can be nuanced and subtle about it, and I think get our message across to a wider audience. That's the point,
2: right? And I, you know i I have seen like in. In our industry of the archery side of it, you know, they have the full draw tour that is is coming out and is going to different cities. And having people uh, put those films out there that are done so well that actually show the whole different side of who we are and why we – do this quest, why we're in this pursuit, why this means so much and how it stirs our soul. And I, you know, I, I'm really glad to see stuff like that. And I'm glad to see it going to theaters and mainstream and getting out there. And I'd like to see that even more because I think, I think it's all, it's all about anything that people fear in life is because of misunderstanding and fear and, um, and putting your own perceptions on why that is taking place. And, you know, and we don't help that sometimes, you know, and, you know, when things were portrayed in the past, when people throw the, you know, the critter on top of a hood with blood going all over the place and going there and, and not showing honor to the animal sometimes. And, and I think as, as hunters, I think we all need to think about that and take responsibility in that and portray who we are in a good light and not in a bloodthirsty light. And, you know, I, I think that's important. I think that's true. Cool. I think, like I said, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And it's not that animals don't bleed. It's not that animals don't die. They do. It's not that we don't kill animals. We do. But you, that's part of the process. And it's not something that has to be magnified per point. To, to make that the, the glory the glory is in the honor of the hunt and I'm sorry I kind of get on my soapbox a little bit as well there um, because I am so passionate about what I do and how I do it and these critters and you know to me elk are my animal and like you said the the majesty the aura um the the feeling that you get in that presence and, and I've had people say you know um how then do you kill an animal like that and i and i tell them in the honor of the hunt i do because i tell you i would much rather put food on my table with this majestic animal and doing it in in the honor of the hunt than for that animal to have starved out there, or you know uh, for that animal to have been killed by vehicles going up and down the road you know i would I would rather it be the honor that I can give that animal and you know that's just a small slice of the reason but we all need to be able to have our reasons to talk about those and i and i hear people that i have friends that they say well we live in some place where it's not you know i'm afraid to say something because next thing i know i'm defending myself and i'm like you know what that's your educational moment there that's your opportunity don't be that turtle in a shell man you know show your pride Um, and be fearless and show honor to what we do and the way we do it. And think about why you do what you do, why we do what we do so that you can explain it in a very um, honest and honorable way. So yeah, totally um, agree with you on on a lot of those points, Chris. And And it's nice to see That somebody of your value system and your knowledge and your intelligence is out there spearheading these exact type of things in in that media and in that industry. So um, for that, I give you a lot of kudos, But
1: Well, we're we're trying to do it. and, And even with my kids, I mean, we're always talking about, you know, the informed argument, right? Your argument's only as good as your facts. So, you know, I know you're passionate about hunting. I know you love to do it. And we, we have very much that same debate is what what is it you love about it? How do you share that with other people? And and look, I'm a biologist by training. So, you know, I, I know it's sustainable, you know, but I don't go hunting because I'm trying to control a population. That's a byproduct of the fact that I like to go hunting. Right. I like to eat the meat. You know, I, I don't, I think it was Cochise that said, you know, 10,000 years ago, we were all hunters. There was no debate. This is what we are as creatures. This is where we came from. And, and so the moral of is to apologize for that as opposed to apologizing for hunting. So, yeah.
2: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, b- before we get out of here, uh, I- I'd like for you to to think about, and, and you just talked about, one of your most difficult hunts that you've had, um, an experience that you had, that came out in such a way that it, it brought that exhilaration and share that with our audience and give them a slice of what you've been able to experience.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think from the general big game experience for me that, that one of the toughest hunts I've ever done was a, was a mountain goat. Hunt. I, I went on three different mountain goat hunts and I, I always wanted to get one with the big coat, which meant late season, snow, you know, trying to see a white animal in the snow was, was a little more difficult than I thought it would be. But we, you know, going up the mountain multiple times, finally getting up there, pure exhaustion. And then when you finally crest over a little ridge, there on a little bit of a bench is a giant Billy bedded down, you know, with your initials tattooed on his butt. Um, yeah, that, that's a, that's a pretty satisfying deal, particularly after three different trips and in a span of like 15 years it took a long time before from the time I initially went hunting mountain goat and and really wanted to get one to the time I completed the task so yeah I mean there's there's certain animals that you remember for those kinds of reasons you know because you you really did covet them you worked hard you trained you just didn't get it done just didn't happen. for 101 other reasons, you know, from whether the animal spooked, whatever, you just didn't get it done. But I think part of it is you just keep getting after it, whether it's an elk hunt, whether it's, you know, a mountain goat or whatever, you don't give up. I mean, it's the process that, and the older I get, the more I realize it really is about the process. The process is the fun. And it used to be much more about, you know, taking the animal, that was the fun. Then suddenly it was, it was an achievement, whatever. But now, when I get into a mountain camp now, I just savor it all. I mean, I love it. I love the snicker of a horse, the smell of, of uh, wood smoke off a camp, you know, the, the frost, two figures of Jack Daniels at the end of the night sitting around a campfire. I mean, that's heaven. You know, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a whole cathedral right there.
2: Yeah, you gotta quit saying the campfire though. My I, the guys that I hunt with, because I'm I'm a real scent freak uh, about a lot of things, and uh, you know they're always wanting to have a campfire, and I'm always keeping. And and it helps, you know, in some of these places in New Mexico, when you have dry seasons, it helps not to have to worry about that as yeah. well. But but yeah. oh yeah, you're just giving them fuel for the fire when you talk about <laughs> that mess. So, <laughs> our <Venezuelan> Sorry, <laughs> um, So. Chris, where can our listeners um, find, you know, if they want to see more of the shows, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of them, where, where can they view your show or that you host?
1: Yeah, it's on outdoor channels uh, Saturday at 1230 Eastern and then four other times during the week. And they can just go to Sporting Classics TV, um, Instagram. You'll, you can see all the information there. Sportingclassics.com has it. Outdoor Channel has the schedule. The show then goes into syndication after running for two quarters on Outdoor Channel on about 115 stations coast to coast. And then goes into Canada on Wild TV internationally through our parent company. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not too tough to find. Just Google, you know, Sporting Classics Television with Chris Dorsey, and, and you'll you'll get a lineup of times and locations depending on where you're at.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'd like to encourage all of our listeners as well if you want to take part in this, in propagating the conservation efforts, take a look for us, for the Rocky Mountain Elk uh, Foundation, um, go support these conservation, um, and, yeah, in and, and these organizations become part of it. You don't have to be the one out front to help the message get out there. Um, they need your support, uh, learn your arguments, learned to be able to talk about your passions and sharing them in an honorable way and keep promoting that. Chris, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. It was an honor to meet you. It was an honor to have you. Uh, I might even now have to find a way that I can see those shows myself now, man, (laughs) because it it sure was a pleasure meeting you, man.
1: Well, Joe, it's great to be on your show. Nice to meet you as well and keep up the great work.
2: Yeah, thank you, man. And guys, and you do have a podcast as well, correct?
1: Yeah, Sporting Classics TV podcast is is our podcast that we do. It's about once a week, once every couple of weeks, depending on travel schedules and all that fun stuff. Yeah, there but you can find it everywhere.
2: All right, man. So you guys out there, man, keep believing and achieving. You know, mm-hmm. keep listening to that screaming, but most of all, keep on grinding. We'll see you next time.